Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. The province of New Brunswick is located on the east coast of Canada and is steeped in history and surrounded by nature's beauty. Its eastern boundaries border the Gulf of St. Lawrence, which flows into the Miramashi Bay and River. Back in 1948, when Alan Legere was born there, his family resided in the small town of Chatham Head on the south side of the river. Alan grew up poor. His father left when he was just a toddler, and he became very close to his older brother Fred, who was six years older than him. Alan was only five years old when he saw his brother and a friend get hit by a truck and killed. It is not known if that's what drove him to a life of crime, but perhaps. His first conviction for theft was when he was 19 years old. Over the years, he had multiple convictions for breaking and entering, theft, possession of stolen goods, and assault. In his younger years, he was heavy set and strong, with long dark curly hair and piercing blue eyes. Not much is known about his personal life, but at some point he was married twice and had two children. He worked at a local bar known for its barroom brawls, and one night police were called to break up a brawl. Alan had taken a broken beer bottle and struck a man in the cheek, then twisted the bottle and shredded his skin. During his 20s and 30s, police suspected Alan was connected to a number of serious crimes in the Miramashi area. He had a charismatic personality with powers of persuasion, and police believed he used others to commit his crimes. In 1982, he was arrested after a lengthy police chase through the bush. He weaved in and out, changed his shoes, crossed streams, and doubled back before he was caught. The Edmonton Journal featured an article in which Allen's parole officer Bob Ross described him as someone that relates to people in difficulty and sympathizes with the underdog, possibly seeing himself in the same way. He certainly is a deep thinker and friendly on the street. He's not a recluse or anything like that. I always found him to be a gentleman. He's a bit of a philosopher, a good talker, and a man gifted with the facility to be friendly when he feels it is necessary and vicious when there's something he wants. A police officer who had many encounters with Alan over the years said, He has what I call split personality. You could talk to him one day, and the next, he'd just glare at you. His moods could change very quick, just in a matter of minutes. He could be a very nice person at times, but once he changed, he couldn't be. In June 1986, Alan was 38 years old and teamed up with 18-year-old Todd Machette and 20-year-old Scott Curtis to rob a local shopkeeper and his wife who'd operated a small store for 30 years. They drove by their home twice, first on June 11th, then again two days later. On June 21st, the trio executed their plan. 
the Ottawa Citizen described how John and Mary Glendine had just closed their store nearby Black River Bridge and arrived at their home next door. They were sharing a late-night snack when they heard a loud noise at the door. John went to see what had caused it when two men burst in. A third man stayed on the porch. One of the men pushed Mary into the kitchen. The other hit John. He asked them what they wanted, but his attacker didn't answer and just kept beating him. Mary was tied to a chair but managed to free herself. She tried to get to her husband but was pushed into a closet, sexually assaulted and threatened. She offered to go upstairs to their bedroom and open the safe. It contained their life savings, around 45000 in cash. The two men followed her, and when she reached for the handle of the safe, one of them struck her in the head. She explained she was just trying to open up the safe when she was struck again and knocked unconscious. John had been taken to his bedroom upstairs, his hands bound with an electrical cord. He was beaten and strangled to death a scarf tied tightly around his neck. When Mary came to, she was in the bathroom with her head in the toilet. A scarf had been wound around her throat and tied in knots. She managed to call 911. When police arrived, they saw blood everywhere, on the walls and on the floor, pools of blood. Police found Mary at the top of the stairs. An officer cut the scarf off her neck, she was close to death, but still alive. They called her daughter Margaret, who lived nearby, and she rushed over, but barely recognized her. Police searched the main floor of the house in the basement and didn't find John. Then they saw what looked like a trail of blood outside the house and searched outdoors. Forty-five minutes later, an officer upstairs in the house found John's body on the floor in the bedroom. Beside his head was a six-inch rock, and on his face, a footprint. The safe was gone, along with the cash. At 2 a.m., Alan was back in Chatham at his girlfriend Christine's apartment. She awoke to the sound of him showering, and when he emerged, he dumped a roll of red-stained money on her bed and said, We've got it made now, and told her to count it. There was $14,000. He told her it was his share of the robbery. Then he took his black leather jacket and wiped it down. Police later located the safe, tossed in the bushes. It was empty. Within a week, warrants were issued for Todd and Scott. Then police arrested both men and Alan. All three were charged with second-degree murder, and all three pled not guilty. Before trial, Todd and Scott changed their plea to guilty and were sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 16 years. But Alan maintained that he had not been there the night of the murder, and that he was given his share of the robbery money because he'd known where it was. He went to trial in the beginning of 1987. Police put Alan's girlfriend in the Federal Witness Protection Program, and she testified. A blood specialist with the crime lab also testified, the spots of blood on the blanket from her bed as matching both John and Alan. And John's blood and hair were also found on Alan's jacket. On January 22nd, the jury delivered their verdict to the court. Alan was found guilty of second-degree murder. When he heard he'd been convicted, 
he vowed to the people of the Miramashi that he was going to terrorize their town. He was sentenced to life in prison with no eligibility of parole for 18 years. He appealed his conviction, but while serving his sentence, Allen was stabbed in prison. Later, it was revealed through parole board documents that Scott Curtis had been involved, but for technical reasons was not charged. Allen was upset that his appeal was taking so long, and he was tired of being locked in a tiny cell in solitary confinement 23 hours a day. He began planning his escape. Sometime in 1988, he'd asked a prison guard for some solder to fix his television. The guard supplied it, and he held on to it until the time was right, and used the solder to make a handcuff key. On May 3, 1989, 43-year-old Allen had an ear infection, and two prison guards were assigned to escort him to the Moncton Hospital. The Gazette reported that he was searched before the trip, handcuffs were placed on his wrists, shackles around his legs, and a body chain. He was loaded into the prison van for the two-hour drive to the hospital. During that time, he used his handmade key to unlock the handcuffs. When they arrived at the hospital, he shuffled out of the van, keeping his hands together to hide the unlocked cuffs. He asked to use the washroom, and two minutes later when he came out, the cuffs and leg irons were off, and he took off running. The prison guards couldn't keep up with him, but to his surprise, the prison van driver Doug Sweezy chased him until he told him to get out of here, and Doug listened. That surprised Alan, but he didn't take a second to think about it. He ran through the parking lot and spotted Margaret Olive in her car. He ordered her out of it, but she wouldn't budge. So he told her he was serving an 18-year sentence for murder, thinking that would make her flee. But nope. She stayed put, so he took the car with her in it. Alan drove to Moncton's West End in a residential area and dumped the stolen car and Margaret. Police went door-to-door, handing out photos of Alan. Schools closed, and people stayed indoors. Officers with tracking dogs scoured the woods where he'd been caught years earlier. They suspected he'd broken into a construction shack in an industrial area. Then they received a report of someone hiding in the bushes behind a meatpacking plant and used dogs in a helicopter to search, but he managed to elude them. Sightings of Allen were reported twice in Chatham. The first was near the area where John and Mary's empty safe had been found. $25,000 was still unaccounted for. Perhaps he went back looking for it. The second sighting was from a resident who spotted him coming out from behind his shed in a backyard. He chased him with his car. Allen tripped and fell, but managed to get away. In their search of the area later, police located his eyeglasses. In Chatham, Annie Flam and her sister-in-law, Nina Flam, ran a small grocery store, and attached to the store was a house the two women shared. On May 29th, Alan had been on the run for three weeks when he snuck into their home and donned a ski mask. Tiny, 75-year-old Annie was beaten to death. Then he set her on fire. 
In another part of the large house, he found 63-year-old Nina. She fought back and struggled with Alan. He beat and repeatedly sexually assaulted her over a period of three to four hours. Then, he tucked her into bed and set her bedroom on fire. Police and firefighters were called at 3.30 a.m. to a house fire. They found Nina Flam on the first floor near the rear door. She had second and third degree burns over 40% of her body. The house was too hot to enter. For the next four months, Alan remained on the run. People in the Miramashi area were paralyzed with fear. They installed light poles around their properties and kept the lights on all night in case he was lurking in the shadows. They slept with guns under their pillows. Family members grouped together at each other's home so no one would be alone. And they didn't answer a knock on their door without a gun by their side. Five months after his escape, police and firefighters were called to another fire at 7 a.m. Two sisters, Donna and Linda Donnie, 40 and 45 years old, were found dead in their home. The sisters had lived in the house their entire lives. When firefighters arrived who knew the sisters, they couldn't tell them apart they were so badly beaten. Linda's body was partly dressed, her eyes bloody and swollen. Donna's body had been tucked into her bed under a quilt. Police didn't know if there was any connection between the deaths and the fires and felt Alan had left the area by now. But just to be safe, the Newcastle Town Council cancelled trick-or-treating on Halloween. It was mid-November, almost seven months since his escape. At 5.30 p.m., 69-year-old Father James Smith, a Catholic priest at the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary Church for the last 20 years, had just returned from visiting the hospital in Newcastle. At a recent sermon, he spoke of the crime wave in the area and told his parishioners not to live in fear and told them to pray. Father Smith lived alone at the rectory next to the small yellow church, but it was well lit and he felt safe. Around 9 p.m. he was spotted on the porch by a neighbor. He appeared to be looking for the cause of a noise outside, then turned and went back inside. Alan had attended that church as a young boy, and his family members were among Father Smith's flock. He stole a ladder from a neighbor and used it to get into the rectory. Sometime that night, Father Smith was beaten to death. Alan wasn't bothered by a dead body in the house. He changed his clothes, washed his boots, and had something to eat. He broke into the safe and even answered the phone telling someone, wrong number. He put plastic bags on his feet to keep them dry, but what he didn't notice is that he left a bloody footprint on a church magazine. The next day at 6.35 p.m., a parishioner arrived early for evening mass and noticed there were no lights on in the church. Ten minutes later, Alan hotwired Father Smith's car and drove it out of the church's garage. Witnesses reported seeing a long-haired man driving fast. More parishioners arrived and became concerned when Father Smith wasn't there for Mass and the church was still dark. One of them, who had a key, used it to enter the rectory and quickly ran out yelling for someone to call the police. 
Later that evening, Father Smith's car was found abandoned 80 miles away in a parking lot in Bathurst. Reward money poured in. Crime Stoppers was offering $50,000 for information leading to his arrest, plus another $50,000 for information leading to his conviction. A week after Father Smith's murder, Allen was 275 miles away in St. John. The Gazette reported that on November 24th, he showed up at Piper's Pub around 2 p.m. and spent much of the day there, drank beer and played pool. Staff noticed he was friendly and a good tipper. When someone asked him what he had in the grocery bag he was carrying, he replied, A gun. Everyone laughed, even him. The owner of the pub thought he looked familiar, but couldn't place him. No one had any idea who he really was. While he sat drinking beer, Alan wrote an autobiography of sorts. Over 15 pages, he listed dates, names, and things that had happened throughout his life. He wrote down his social insurance number and signed it, Alan Legere. He torn two pages from the government section of the phone book, underlined some names and numbers, and wrapped it around his notes. Then he left them on the table and walked out. The staff at the pub picked them up and read a few pages. It sent chills down their spines. Then they phoned police. Around 9.30 p.m. that night, Alan hailed a taxi. He pulled out a sawed-off 308 rifle from his grocery bag and aimed it at the driver, told him who he was, and ordered him to drive him to Moncton. About halfway into the trip, the taxi skidded off the road. An off-duty RCMP officer, who happened to be vacationing in the area, stopped to offer assistance. Alan didn't realize she was a police officer and told her who he was and ordered her to drive. The officer climbed back into her car but made a wrong turn and was heading back to St. John. They stopped in Sussex for gas. Alan took her keys and money to go pay for the gas, but she had a second set of keys in her purse. She put them in the ignition and roared off and alerted police. I love that part because never underestimate what a woman carries in her purse. Roadblocks were quickly set up throughout eastern New Brunswick. The RCMP brought in an additional 100 officers to help in the manhunt. Alan, meanwhile, had spotted a yellow semi-trailer parked at the gas station. He hijacked it and forced a kidnapped driver to head to Newcastle. RCMP Corporal Gary Lutwick along with an officer and dogmaster from British Columbia, were posted at one of the roadblocks. Standing in the middle of a snow-covered remote logging road, they spotted the yellow Mack truck. The driver wasn't stopping, and neither were they. They moved toward the truck, and surprisingly, it stopped, and the driver jumped out. Alan was meek and surrendered easily, he looked old and tired, his gray hair cut short and his face shaved. He was shackled and taken to the Newcastle Police Station. The biggest manhunt in New Brunswick history had ended. The monster of the Miramichi had been caught. At Allen's trial in 1990 for the prison escape, he faced charges for escaping, kidnapping, and assault with a weapon. 
His defense only called one witness, and in a surprise twist, that witness was Alan. He was convicted and received a nine-year sentence. He immediately filed a notice to appeal. In September 1991, Alan's murder trial began. It was revealed that swabs had been taken from Annie, Donna, and Linda. DNA had just evolved, and this was the first case in Canada where it was used in court. Experts explained in the courtroom how DNA worked and that Alan's DNA had been found at all three crime scenes. The swab from Nina nailed him, with a 1 in 5.2 million chance that the DNA wasn't his. The prosecution called over 200 witnesses. Alan did not testify for the defense this time. On Sunday, November 3rd, after two and a half months, the jury deliberated for 13 hours and found Alan guilty on all four counts of first-degree murder. He was unrepentant. As he was led out of court, he turned to the judge and half-smilingly said, We'll have round number two. He was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. In 1991, it was discovered that Alan was planning another escape. The details were not made public at the time, and he was quietly transferred to a supermaximum security prison in Montreal, Quebec. Then, in 2015, he was transferred to a maximum security prison in Edmonton, Alberta, where in 2019, an X-ray of his television revealed a weapon hidden inside. His last parole hearing occurred January 13, 2021. Alan was 72 years old. He still hadn't accepted responsibility for their deaths. When he was asked by a member of the parole board if he's reminded in any way of the pain and the suffering people felt as a result of his actions, he said, yes, I understand that part. But then he asked, why can't they forgive me? Why can't they forget? Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Catherine Foster. In the 1980s, universities felt safe. That is, until Catherine was murdered in a rage of jealousy. Potential suspects arose and fell. The case went cold. But police never forgot her, and 30 years later, got justice for Katie. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe. Sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.